Now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, Behold, now, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. Please let us go to the Jordan, and each of us take from there a beam, and let us make a place there for ourselves where we may live. So he said, Go. Then one said, Please be willing to go with your servants. And he answered, I shall go. And so he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place, and he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up for yourself. And so he put out his hand and took it. Lord, I love your word. And I love the things that you've chosen to tell us, the pieces of history that you chose to keep there for our reading. And we believe this as with every other story or example or or occurrence or happening in Scripture. We believe that this is here for a reason, Father. We ask you to reveal to us the reason this morning. And help us to see some of your nature and character, your love, your compassion, some of, Lord, the way you work personally and the intimacy with which you desire to approach our lives. May we glean understanding here, Father, but much more than that. Help us to enter into your presence this morning. So we believe we do so in worship. Let us do so now in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now the kids are going to be out playing on the lawn across the way. So you're going to hear some kid noises. And that's a good thing. But stay focused. Because this story is just one of those, again, one of those strange ones. One of those odd ones. And they're fun to pick out and take a look at and try to consider and and talk through. But before we get there, I want to ask you all a question. Dan already touched on it. Do you remember when you first gave your life to Jesus? That first moment. The first day or maybe the first week afterwards. Do you remember what life was like when you said, Yes, Lord, I believe in you. Yes, I I believe you died on the cross. And I believe you rose from the dead. And I believe that you are my Savior and Lord. I accept that. I, I want that, Lord. Do you remember how you felt? And... How each day after that was just new and fresh. Waking up to see what God was going to do next. Finding every time you opened the Bible after that, perhaps you were just captivated by what was talked about there. Now, there may be someone sitting here today saying, No, I don't remember that because I never made that choice. I never became a Christian. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm checking it out. I'm listening. But... That's not something that I have in my background. Well, let me keep it real for you this morning. My greatest hope is that you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And that you will believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. This is what Paul said in Romans 10 verse 9. My greatest hope is that if you are not a Christian this morning, you will give your life to Jesus this morning. That you won't wait. You won't put it off. That this will happen today. But I want to let you know that this is not a sermon directed at trying to get someone to become a Christian. It's actually for those who have been believers for some amount of time in their lives. So those of you who have walked with the Lord, and you have that memory back there of first giving your life to Jesus, and how life was good, and every moment was great. But perhaps you're in a different place. I I need to tell you, if you're not a Christian this morning, there is a reality 
about Christianity, and it is simply this. We tend to think. As believers, as Christians, we have a tendency to go under. We're not the greatest floaters in the world. We tend to sink. Jesus was walking on the waters of the Galilee. And it's a favorite story among believers. Jesus walking on the water. Why is it a favorite story? Well, apart from the fact that Jesus is walking on the water, which everybody thinks is cool, Peter walks on the water to him. And we are so much like Peter. And Peter is just the greatest example for your average Christian in America today. Foot in his mouth half the time. Wants so badly to please the Lord, but sinks right and left. Listen to this, Matthew 14, 28. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Recognize this. Peter is only the second person in all of history. He's the second person to walk on water. No one else did. Jesus and Peter, by my count. Which puts Peter in a category alone with Jesus. I've never walked on water. I tried many times. We had a swimming pool when I was a kid. And over and over and over I tried to walk in that water and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't stay up. Peter did. Don't miss that. We look at this story and we say, oh, Peter, Peter is blowing it again. No, he walked. He got on the waves and he headed out toward Jesus. And as long as his eyes were on Jesus, it was cool. Until he began to look at the waves. Seeing the wind, verse 30 of Matthew 14, Peter became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Can you imagine being out on the Galilee? I mean, get some context for this. He's out on the Galilee, and when he sees Jesus, it's great. But then he looks around and realizes, I'm in the middle of a sea. And it's stormy out here. What am I thinking? And perhaps you've been there. Man, what am I thinking? It's Christian stuff. It's not so easy. Well, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And he said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, I tell you this because the Christian life is not a directed vertical line straight up to heaven. From the moment you give your life to Jesus, it's not like we just shoot straight up. Everything's good. Everything's great. How you doing, Cosby? (laughs) Come on up. (laughs) It's more of a rising and falling. It's a little more stormy than that. We tend to go down into the troughs and up onto the crest and down into the troughs and up onto the crest and sometimes we spend a lot of time in the troughs. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I'm just telling you ahead of time, hey, that's real life, man. That's the way it is. Paul said in Romans 7:18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. I want to be good. I want to follow, but man... There's evil there. He says, the good that I want to do, I do not do. I practice the very evil that I do not want. Just a show of hands. How many people practice the very evil that you do not want? And you know, you better raise your hand because the rest of you are going to be labeled liars. If I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. The world would call that hypocritical. I call it reality. I've told you before, when people say, you Christians are just hypocrites, I say, yes, we are. Absolutely, of course. What, do you think I'm perfect? you think I even have, have a, a handle on what that means, righteousness and all that? No, I don't. But Jesus does. 
And I trust Him. And when I think, I cry out, Lord, save me! Because He's right there. And He doesn't let me go under. Here's the good news this morning. If God can make an axe head float, (laughs) He can make you float. He can raise you up. But what concerns me most in this life that we live in discipleship, in Christianity, in following the Lord, what concerns me most is not the troughs of the waves, and it's not the crest. In the troughs, we're fighting for survival. We're down there, man, we're trying to stay alive. When we're on the crest of the wave, we can see the horizon, we can see everywhere, and it's great to be up there. It's when we are in that place where our relationship, where our Christianity becomes a religious dead calm. That's when we sink. That's when it gets tough. Dead calm. It's a nautical phrase for a windless sea. And Christians, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Worship goes dry. How many more songs? Are, man, I'm doing another one? <laughs> Crawford keeps repeating that chorus. Move on. <laughs> Ministry becomes tiresome. I shared on Wednesday night. I think it was Wednesday. It could have been last Sunday. I don't know, but we're watching this uh, video of Tim Hawkins, Christian comedian, hilarious guy. And he talks about how we have certain words that we use in Christianity, Christian code. One of them is servant heart. Servant heart. People will tell you, oh, you got a servant heart. What they're saying is we need you to stack chairs. <laughs> and that's great. I don't want a servant heart. I'll be stacking, man. Or Bible study. And that dead calm Bible study becomes of little or no importance. I'll get it on Sunday. Fellowship with other believers becomes an afterthought. You ever feel like that? Or worse, you ever feel like you're sinking and life is just rushing over you? Kind of like the Jordan over the axe head. It's just going on and here I am. I'm drowning here. I'm sinking and no one even knows. No one's even paying attention. I'd like us to think through this unusual miracle because there's a great encouragement here this morning. Let's go back and kind of walk through it uh, verse by verse. Chapter 6, verse 1. And I'm going to give you four, uh, four things to consider. Four things that are helpful, I believe, in, in this walk. Helpful for staying afloat, but not necessarily the key. The last one's the key, but the first one is a powerful combination. Look at verse 1. Now, the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. It's too limited for us here, Elisha. In other words, their barn was full. They were beyond multiple services. They had no more room. We are about to learn of the first building expansion project in the Bible right here. This place is too limited for us. We need some room. They've outgrown it. And you might ask, well, wait a minute, Rick, where do you get the idea this was a, a school? Or a place for the young prophets? Which it was. In fact, there were training schools for the prophets that Elisha had set up in several places. Bethel, Jericho, some other locations. Where he was training up and developing these, these young men to be prophets. Well, my Bible, you might say, just says sons of the prophets, not students of prophecy so where are you getting this well that's the implied meaning of the phrase sons of the prophets sons of the prophets doesn't mean someone who was born whose dad happened to be a prophet that word son you may have heard it before Ben Benjamin son of my right hand is what Benjamin means right Ben so you can just call Ben son or Sonny and he'll be fine with that (laughs) sons of the prophets prophets is the Hebrew word Nabi or Nabayim 
Now Cheryl and I were in Israel this last uh, spring, many of you know this, and we were looking for the Bridges for Peace um, main offices. And they said, oh, it's easy. You just go to the Street of the Prophets and, and head down the street and we're off to the side, off the Street of the Prophets. We're okay, great. So we start walking. We headed over to Ben Yehuda Street and we went across then to Joppa Street, Joppa Street where the bulldozer this week was driven by a Palestinian man who bulled down, killed some people and that was going on. We were on that street. Great pizza place there. Big Apple Pizza. Oh, oh, good stuff. So we're on Joppa Street and we're looking for this, where's this Street of the Prophets? And I finally flagged down this, this Jewish man. I said, hey, do you know where the Street of the Prophets is? And he goes, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's one block down. Great, so we had one block down. And we get up there, and it did not say Street of the Prophets. And I, I asked another guy, hey, we were told that this was the Street of the Prophets. And the guy looked at me, and he looked at the sign, and said, yeah, Nabayim, Street of the Prophets. Oh, you got to know Hebrew. I get it. <laughs> They'd have a little more courtesy to just speak English and appreciate that. So Nabiim, the prophet. So it's Ben Nabi is sons of the prophets. But that word son doesn't just mean child of. It also has a different, a more obscure meaning that I believe in the context of this story is more accurate. It means a member of a guild, an order, or a class. In other words, students. Students of the prophets. That's what this is talking about here, I believe. And a few things to jot down about these sons of the prophets. They were students who were devoted to the word. Students devoted to the word. Psalm 111 verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. You tell me you delight in the things that God does, show me. say, I love the things of God. Really? If you do, His word says you'll study Him. You're going to spend time in His word. If you're one who delights in all the things of the Lord. You know, it's one of the top four descriptions of the first century church. What did they do? What was the first century church like? We're told in Acts chapter 2 verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And to fellowship, and to breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's what they were about. We're told in 2 Timothy 2.15 to study, to show ourselves approved unto God. Workmen that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling the word of truth. Now I tell you that once again just to say we are having a great time on Wednesday night and you're all invited to be there. Wednesday night we were talking about Elisha in the city of Dothan. And his servant went out in the morning and looked and saw that they were surrounded by the Aramean army. Massive army out there. And he ran back inside and said, Elisha, we're surrounded, we're surrounded. And Elisha said, oh no. you got to remember the greater are those who are with us than those who are with them. Quoting scripture. It would be written later, but spoken by the Spirit. And so then Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes so he can see what I see. And his servant went back outside and surrounding the Aramean army were thousands of chariots and horses of fire. Army of God. Now what was cool on Wednesday night and you can listen to this on the, on the uh, website, is as we're talking about this, every time I said chariot, three times in a row, the thunder roared. <laughs> I didn't even know it. I got home and put the little thing in my machine and, and was checking, the, making sure it all got recorded, and I hear the thunder and went, oh, wow. <laughs> That is one powerful pastor, I'm telling you. Thank you for laughing. Appreciate it. I 
have been asked quite a few times, Rick, why do you call people Bible students? What are you talking about? And I'll tell you specifically what I'm talking about Wednesday night. I'm talking about those who are in the Word consistently. And when I say, you Bible students, you understand this. You know what I'm talking about. Typically, I'm talking about something we've just talked about on Wednesday. And so I want to invite you all to remember we meet every Wednesday night here in the barn at 7 o'clock. And you're all invited to audit the course. Okay? And these prophecy students, they were devoted to the Word. But they had something else going on for them. They were spirit-filled. Developing their giftedness under the oversight of Elisha. Spirit-filled. It's an unfortunate um, turn of events that makes the phrase spirit-filled a negative one in some of the church today. People hear spirit-filled and they go, oh, oh, oh yeah, I, I've heard about you guys. How about other people ask, are you a spirit-filled church? I'm like, I think so. <laughs> Isn't that part of being Christian? Be filled with His Holy Spirit? Now, brothers and sisters, I want to pause and talk about this again. We covered this before. And you can go back and listen to the teaching in Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. It's a teaching entitled, Into the Overflow. It was a Sunday morning several months back. And I encourage you to do so and to think through what does this whole Holy Spirit thing mean for us? What's the Bible really say about it? And see, that for me is, is my teaching and my leading. What does the Word tell me about what it means to be Spirit-filled? And we talked about it in depth in that study. But the bottom line is, it all has to do with Jesus Christ. To be a Spirit-filled person is to be none other than like Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be Spirit-filled, look at Jesus. He was the most Spirit-filled man ever to walk the face of the earth. That's what it looks like. To be filled to the overflow with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one, by the way, who coined the phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was not a Pentecostal thing. It happened on Pentecost. <laughs> but it started with Jesus. He's the one who said it. And notice this. John chapter 20, verse 22. It's after the resurrection and Jesus has the apostles gathered around. And he leans toward them and he says, it says he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Cool. Receive the Holy Spirit. He goes, Whoo! Receive the Holy Spirit. Indicating some really cool stuff. One that it was His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Receive the Holy Spirit, He said. But then we read later in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, that John baptized with water, Jesus speaking, He said, But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. There are some churches who would not let Jesus teach in their Sunday morning because He said that. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And it says in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, wait a minute. If right after the resurrection, Jesus leans forward to his apostles and breathes on them and says, Receive the Spirit. And then here he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's a little confusing. Jesus, didn't you already give him the Spirit? Didn't they receive the Spirit here? So why are you telling them the power of the Holy Spirit that something else is going to happen over here? Because it's two different events. It's two different things happening here. One is a filling. The other is an empowering. Two distinct events. First, when you give your life to the Lord, He promises to come and to dwell in you. To fill you, literally, with His Spirit. John 14, 23. Great verse. Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. 
And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. What a set up house right there in your heart. Jesus promises. Acts 2.38 Peter said to the people Repent each one of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ For the forgiveness of your sins And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit The indwelling presence of Jesus He says the promise is for you And he's talking to the people all right around him there And to your children And for all who are far off As many as the Lord our God will call to himself Guess what that's us And so the Bible indicates that you receive the Holy Spirit When you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, He walks with you, He's there with you, your comforter, your helper, your guide. But Jesus also promised an outpouring of His Holy Spirit for power. And we're not talking about power to make it thunder when you say chariots on a Wednesday night. We're not talking about power like lightning coming out of your fingers or like all of a sudden you're overcome and you start to twitch. We're talking about power to do what God wants done in His kingdom in the world today. What's that? Witnessing. Ministry in the body Gifts, abilities, talents That he gives to each one of us Gifts actually are much more than talents and abilities They're supernatural filling By which God can use us to do things we can't normally do We would not be able to do the things he calls us to do If not by his spirit Not by might, not by power But by my spirit, says the Lord Zechariah 4.6 or 6.4 One of the two, find it, it's there Now some people say, great, okay, well, I gave my life to Jesus and I know that His Holy Spirit lives within me. How do I get this outpouring you're talking about? How do I get this this extra power? How do I receive these gifts that I might serve Him better? And it's very simple. We love to gum things up as, as people, kind of a human trait. But it's very simple. Ask Him, Lord, I'd like to serve you better. Will you empower me to do that? Lord, I would like to be a better servant in the fellowship. Father, I would like to be a better evangelist. I'd like to be able to talk to everybody about Jesus. I just I don't know how. Will you gift me to do that? I need the power of your spirit to function in my life the way you want me to function. Will you fill me in and pour out on me? Jesus said, ask and you'll receive. Ask him. And by the way, I'm personally much more comfortable with the Lord determining who gets what gift and how His Spirit is to be poured out than I am with us determining that. Because when the Lord determines it, it's going to be right. When we determine it, we can get a little off. (laughs) Allowing the Lord to pour out His Holy Spirit. Just coming to Him and saying, Lord, I, I would like to receive more of Your Spirit, more of Your power. Overflow me, Lord. Allows Him to do the work and it removes our human fleshly comparisons which, by the way, is one of the biggest problems in the church between those who claim to have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and those who don't, is the comparison factor. I'm more righteous because I've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you have not. <laughs> you know what God would call that? There's a, a good spiritual word for it. Bogus. <laughs> it has nothing to do with your spirituality or your righteousness. If you don't believe me, read the book of First Corinthians where we see one of the most unrighteous churches in the world, the most spirit-filled. They were out of control. I'll tell you what the greater sign of the Holy Spirit in your life is. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's knowing and being aware of, of those characteristics, those attributes. You know what the fruit of the Spirit is, right? 
We bring this verse up a lot, and I'm going to keep bringing it up because I just I want this to get so ingrained in this. Galatians 5:22 and 23: Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's nine on the list. That's what you aspire to. As you seek the outpouring of the Spirit, you will know that His Spirit is in you. You might not have an electric experience right up front, but you will know His Spirit is at work and alive in your life when the fruit begins to grow. The gifts will be there too, but the fruit shows the very nature and character of God at work in your life. Gary Kramer came up with a great way to know these things. He said, the first three are one-syllable words, the second three are two-syllable words, and the third three are three-syllable words. And I'm like, that's brilliant. I'm out here playing with thunder, and he's coming up with really applicable, practical ways to to do things. Love, joy, peace, single-syllable. Patience, good, kindness, goodness, double-syllable. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So let's say all those together. Ready? Say them after me. Love, joy, peace. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness. Patience, goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Excellent. Well, the sons of the prophets were both students and they were spirit-filled. And number three, they were submitted as disciples of Elisha. Man, Rick, you got all that out of one verse? Yeah, I had some time this week. They were submitted as disciples of Elisha. And that's the powerful combination. Devoted to the Word, developing their spiritual gifts, and disciples of their Master. Watch this, verse 2. Please, one of them says, let us go to the Jordan and and each of us take from there a beam and let us make a place there for ourselves where we may live. So he said, go. Verse 3. Then one said, please be willing to go with your servants. And Elisha answered, I shall go. So he went with them and they came down to the Jordan and they cut down trees. And I really like this because we see something of Jesus here in Elisha. We see something of a man who obviously was loved by his students. These students had a great affinity for Elisha, for they said, hey, we've got to go build a bigger school. We're out of room here. And he says, great, go ahead and do that. And they said, well, you're coming too, right? We want you to go. It's like Moses said to God when they were crossing the wilderness, Lord, if you don't go, I don't want to go at all. That's a good way to think. Lord, if you're not in it, I'm not in it. And they say, Elisha, come with us. And it speaks well of their relationship with Elisha. And that's the second big thing to note this morning. Not only the powerful combination, but the presence of the Master. The presence of the Master. Mark chapter 3 verse 13 tells us Jesus went up on a mountain. And he summoned those who he himself wanted and they came to him and he appointed twelve. You ever wonder why? Why did Jesus appoint or choose these twelve apostles? There's a whole sermon in that question all by itself. But part of the answer is there in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, he appointed twelve so that they would be with him. That's a great word. So they'd be with him. Because Jesus, though being God in the flesh, through whom and by whom everything was created, Jesus said, I'm not going to do this ministry alone. I want to be surrounded by some fellowship, some guys, some compadres, a band of brothers who will walk with me and be with me. So they won't get lonely in ministry. Jesus could get lonely, you bet he could. Absolutely. He was human. He walked in the flesh just like us. And he said, Now I gotta have some people around me. And he says to us today, Matthew eighteen twenty, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Which means right now. Jesus is here. 
I mean, in all you're looking around and greeting people this morning, did you recognize that Jesus is right here? That He joined us today? It's kind of freaky for me because I'm the one teaching His Word. It's like, it's His Word. If He wants to teach it, He should just come up here to it Himself. He is with us. He said in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Isn't that awesome? I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. Look how intimate and close that the Lord Jesus wants us to be with Him, the presence of our Master. So wherever we go, whether it's down to the Jordan River to build a bigger barn, or it's walking out on the sea, or just home for lunch, invite your Master to come along. He's sure to come. Now here's where our story goes a little bit deeper. Verse 5. As one was spelling a beam, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. The axe head literally flies off the handle and bloop, down into the murky Jordan River and sinks. And this, this student of prophecy is going, Oh no! This is not a good thing. This is very, very bad. It's a huge problem for a young student. <laughs> I mean, iron was pretty rare in Israel in those days as it was. Go back and look in 1 Samuel, about chapter 13 or so. And it talks about how there were two swords to be found in all of Israel. How there wasn't an iron worker in Israel. It was a rare commodity. And even to have axe heads, it wasn't like, hey, I'm just going to pop down to Ace Hardware and pick up a replacement head. This drops into the Jordan and he is sunk. (laughs) Literally. And furthermore, it was borrowed. And how's a starving seminary student going to pay that back? So he's in a bind, but his master is present right there. Verse 6 tells us, The man of God said, Where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. It's personal. It's unpretentious. It's a footnote of a miracle for a single individual. And remember, this is how Elisha likes to work. One person at a time, individual focus, the personal touch. This is not the kind of miracle that would make headlines. You're not going to read about it in the Jericho Post the next morning. Actually, that floats on water story at 11. You're not going to see it like that. This is not like Elijah calling down fire on the prophets of Baal. Boom! Check out the power of God. This was a student and a master making an axe head float. But don't miss this, gang. The axe head floating is as much of a physical, supernatural miracle as Jesus walking on the water. No different. No human being can walk on water. No axe head could float. It goes against the physical laws of nature. Iron just can't float. Don't believe me? Go try it. But Jesus said in Luke 18.27, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And I love that word. This is the personal touch, number three in your notes. The personal touch. It's not a great parting of the Jordan that gets me through the day, gang. It's not the chariots of fire that, that, that help me feel rescued. It's not even the raisings from the dead. You know what really matters to me in my walk with Jesus? And now getting back to this idea of the dead calm in my life. When I'm just feeling sunk. When I'm feeling like I don't have the energy or the wherewithal or the understanding even to move forward in my life. It's not the big massive miracles 
that get my attention. It's the little ones. It's the Shunammite woman that we read about in 2 Kings chapter 4 whose little jar of oil, her last jar of oil, continued to flow as long as she needed it to. Personal. It's the poisonous stew that Elisha made edible for his students also in 2 Kings chapter 4. No one else is there. They're just hungry. And Elisha says, the stew's poisonous? Oh, okay, well we'll fix that. We'll throw some stuff in here. You're good to go. Meeting the need. It's the prophecy student who lost and found his axe head in the Jordan. That's what I need when I lose my head. No pun intended. When I fly off the handle, I need an axe head float. That's what I need. I need to know that God is at work personally. That He cares about me. Of all the vast things going on in the universe at this moment when that axe had plopped into the water, you'd think God would have better things to do than raise up the head of an axe. But see, the best thing that God does is touch us personally. Is reach into our lives and meet the needs that we have where we are. By the way, for me, the greater miracle of Jesus walking on the water wasn't when Peter walked out to him. It was the walk back. And I can picture it in my mind. It's not in the Bible, but I imagine Jesus putting his arm around Peter as they walked back across the water. And they're still walking on the water. Having a conversation. I'm wondering what they said. How far out did they get? And on the way back, the waves are still going at it. We're told that it wasn't until they get in the boat that the wind stops. But once Jesus had his arm around Peter and the two of them are walking back together and they're talking about this exercise of faith, Peter once again forgets about the waves, forgets about the wind. He's just with the Master and the personal touch that Jesus is so well known for. If you're not a Christian today, you need to understand that. That Jesus takes it personally. He takes you and your life personally. He's not just about growing a big church. He's about saving one lamb at a time. That's how much you matter to him. The personal touch. Peter was sunk until he took his eyes and placed them back on Jesus. And Jesus raised him back up. Let me ask you the question we started with. Do you remember when you first gave your life to Jesus? Do you remember a time in your life where Jesus was all that mattered? Where being involved in fellowship was was exciting? Where he was doing things. and You couldn't wait to get there. You couldn't wait to be surrounded by other believers. You couldn't wait to worship. You couldn't wait until that Bible was cracked open and you were going to go back into it. Do you feel maybe like your early passion is sunk and you're having trouble staying afloat? Well, welcome to the club. Because we all have a tendency to sink. But watch this. The man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. What was it that made this tool of service? Indeed, that's similar to us. We're tools of service, instruments to be used by God. That's that's all we really are. In fact, I think an axe head, an iron axe head, is a pretty good picture of most of us. I don't mean to be offensive, but even the Bible compares man to iron. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So there's a connection here. And just like this iron axe head floating down, what is it that makes it rise up and float again? And the answer is a stick. But the word in the Hebrew is literally a tree. It's a tree. 
Elisha cut down a tree and he threw it in the water. It's the same word used in Exodus 15 when Moses and the people of Israel found water to quench their thirst. Oh, it was good. They were dying of thirst. And they finally come upon this oasis, this beautiful pool. And they gather around and someone takes a taste and, oh no, it's bitter, we can't drink it. It's bad. The people grumbled at Moses, Exodus 15:24, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. The bitterness of that moment was completely changed. Back when we were in Exodus, we talked about this. That it's a tree that takes away my bitterness. And in the same way, it's a tree that raises me up when I am sunk. The tree of Calvary, the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on that cross, Peter and the apostles, they thought all was lost. They truly thought their hope was sunk to the bottom of the river. It's over, we're done. But later, Peter would write, in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Number four in your notes, it is the promise of the cross and gain greater than everything else. And we can do all those other things we talked about. I mean, we can be devoted to the Word. And we can be developing spiritual gifts and discipled by the Master. That's a powerful combination. And we can seek to live and to walk in the presence of our Master, learning from the Spirit of Christ Jesus in our lives. And we can be aware of that personal touch of God. But without the promise of the cross, we would be sunk. And that's the thing that I return to time and time again. Now, when we pause and take communion each week, it is not ritual for me. I hope it's not for you. We purpose to do it every week because at least once a week we can get raised up because of what happened on the cross. Remember when Jesus was there and one of the thieves crucified next to him, thinking his life was over, cried out in Luke 23, 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. We'll meet that thief someday. guy whose life was a mess till his last breath. And Jesus saved him. And Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, and this is incredible, powerful stuff. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you realize what he's saying here? It's not just, hey, if God can make an axe head float, he can lift you up. No, it's if his spirit raised Jesus from the dead and that same spirit is in you, guess what? You can be raised up. And it's not just the physical promise. That's part of it. Paul is talking about the day when our physical bodies, if we die before Jesus comes, our physical bodies are going to be resurrected. If we are alive when Jesus comes, our physical bodies are going to be, I don't know, not resurrected, I guess surrected. I mean, we're just going to go up and be glorified and changed. But Paul is also talking about something deeply spiritual. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in your life and you're feeling sunk, guess what? He can raise you up. He wants to raise you up. To lift you out of the water. It's what keeps me afloat. Notice verse 7. Elisha says to his, to his student, he says, Take it up. Take it up for yourself. And so he put out his hand and took it. Elisha didn't make the axe head float to the surface and then pop out of the water and hover and come over and present itself to the student. Elisha said, 
Take it up. Grab it. Take hold of it. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Take it up. Pick it up. Whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. And precious people, if you're having trouble staying afloat, if your Christian walk is lethargic and stagnant, you're sitting there in that place of dead calm and you're starting to sink, understand that the Lord Jesus cares so much about you that He went to the cross, that He is the tree that is thrown into the water to save your very life. Take up the cross, lift up your head, and walk with hope. Why would a person choose to give their life to Jesus and be a Christian so that they can attend church every Sunday morning and Wednesday night the rest of their lives? That's a bonus. That's not a law. I, I wish she was here to tell you herself. Carol got up this morning for communion to share. Carol was baptized just last Sunday morning down at the pond and it was so cool. She said I was raised Catholic and she said there are a few things that I could tell you. She said I know how to remove my hand quickly so as not to get whacked by a ruler. She said I have a I have an aversion to plaid. <laughs> she shared several things and then she said, But you know what? I learned the rules. And I know how to live by the rules. I can stand by the by the rules. Tell me the rules, I can do them. And she said, But I have this friend who loves to do downhill bike riding and she will fly down the hill and I can't do it this is Carol talking I can't do it I can't ride my bike down the hill like that I just can't do it because all I see is the rocks and the next turn and the trees and the boulders and the problem I just I can't do it I see all the rules but my, my friend sees nothing but the line the path and feels completely secure in that and Carol said Jesus is the line I love that. I went ahead and preached my sermon in addition to it because that's what I do, but we could have stopped right there. Jesus is the line. And our eyes fixed on Him and trusting Him. It's not about the rules. That's what? The rules will take care of themselves. Jesus said, hey, if you love God, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and commandments hang on those two things. If you'll do that, the rest will be taken care of. Why would you give your life to Christ and become a Christian? Because He gives us the power to float. To stay afloat. He lifts us up when we're down. He encourages us along the way. He gives us what we don't have in and of ourselves and we have the guarantee not only of resurrection now but resurrection later and eternity of living with a Lord who loves us passionately. That's why I gave my life to Jesus. If you did long ago and you're struggling right now, I hope some of this is encouraging for you and you just remember how much He loved you, how far He was willing to go to lift you up. And if you're not a Christian this morning, we invite you to give your life to Jesus. We're going to sing a song together and stand up. And if you would like to give your life to Jesus, maybe you haven't been baptized and you'd like to do that today, we invite you to come take a seat in the front. I have some of the elders keep their eyes open for that. Let's stand and sing together.